The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. First Thessalonians, would you please? Let's start a new book. And uh, I am not going to have you guys stand while I read it this morning because I want you to be comfortable. It's, I got a lot of territory to cover. So today I'm going to do it just a little bit different. While you're turning there, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, just wave a hand around in the air and uh, we will make sure that you get one. A couple of announcements. First Wednesdays, I think you guys know this, but um, just in case you missed the announcements before. um, In the summer, we we take a break from our Wednesday night midweek services in June, July, and August. Um, They are not canceled. It is a break is what that is. Wasn't that in a TV show? We're on a break. I don't know. That's a bad analogy. Anyway, um, don't, you shouldn't give me a microphone with no script. Anyway, we are going to, uh, we, the reason we do this is because we have this, um, um, the curriculum that we're doing with the Iwanas program, it, it runs the school calendar year. You know what I mean? Like September through May. And it is a massive undertaking to do the Iwana program that we do here at the church. It really is. What Pastor Brent and the team of volunteers that we have pull off is um, they do an incredible amount of work. Um, it, it really takes a lot of effort. And, and so they don't have a curriculum for that for June, July, and August. So to make them like have to make up a whole new thing for those three months, when really that time serves them in June, July, and August in, in two ways. Number one, I don't know if all of you know this or not, it's actually godly to take a break. You do know that, right? God takes breaks. We do know this, right? It's called the Sabbath. On the seventh day, God what? Rested. So it is not unspiritual to take a break. Don't let anyone ever tell you that. Um, that's Satan trying to burn you out. Um, but So it does give our volunteers a break who work really hard with the kids' ministry during that time. And second of all, it, that's the time that they use to revamp, get positions filled, get everything organized and ready to go for when September launches. So we're not going to put that kind of burden on our volunteers and make them then come up with something else to do June, July, and August because that particular program doesn't come with curriculum for that. So we just take a little bit of a break. We just rest on our Wednesday night services during the summer. We encourage you guys to have fellowship with one another. And one of the ways that we foster that sort of fellowship is through our first Wednesday services. So this Wednesday and the first Wednesday of each of those months, we do have a gathering. It's a, it's a time of worship, food, fellowship, games, snow cones, all that kind of stuff. It's really fun. If you were here last year and you were blessed by it, can I get a woohoo? Really, really good times. Uh, we got Curbside King food trucks coming out. They're going to be serving food starting at 5.30 Wednesday night. It is only five bucks a plate. Teriyaki chicken or um, spicy pad thai curry, something or another chicken, peanut, something. I don't know what it is. It just, it proves that God exists and is good. Whatever it is, it's good. And um, so they're going to be serving that and there's some vegetarian options. That starts at 5.30. Um, worship's going to start around 6.15 or so. We've got games, snow cones, stuff for the kids. Please come join us. I promise you, you're going to have a great, great time. That's this Wednesday night. Also, ladies have an online Bible study that's going to be going on through the summer, through the book of Proverbs, but you need to be a member or join their private, uh, private uh, Facebook women's page, exclusive women, I guess, whatever. But um, I tried to join, they wouldn't let me. Um, anyway, you need to be in the women's Facebook page to do that, and that starts tomorrow. So um, uh, it is this in here, Kathy? Is the info they need on that for that? Just find, Kathy, wave, wave your hand to us. 
hey, Kathy can help you. And if you don't see her, stop at the Connect desk on the way out. Second thing, church at the fair. Um, If you guys weren't here last week, we we actually had Pastor Trevor, the worship pastor from Medford Naz, join our worship team last week in leading worship here. And Sam's going to be going another week or two over there and doing worship over there. The reason is we are joining together with them. We've been invited to go actually do church at the Jackson County Fair this year. So on July 16th, I believe is the date, we are going to be meeting in the Lithia Amphitheater over at the fairgrounds that morning service starts at 9 30 in the morning the fair is even handing out church flyers to everyone that comes to the fair that entire week leading up to that we're going to be doing baptisms we're going to be worshiping together it's going to be a really cool time to be worshiping with the extended kingdom of god and like i said last week in case you didn't know this when we go to heaven there's not going to be like a heritage section First Baptist section, Second Baptist section. Like, it's not going to work that way. We're going to be the family of God all worshiping together. So it's a cool kingdom opportunity to join in with our friends. Um, And you get free admission to the fair after that. So score us, right? So uh, mark that on your calendar and bring some people to that, if you would. That'd be a really cool time. And then finally, um, if you're a covenant member here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, I want to encourage you to be here next week because we will be presenting some new shepherding elder candidates to the body next week. And it's good for you guys to know um, who the Lord is charging with your care. So that'll be next week. But enough of that. Um, we're going to start a new book today in First Thessalonians. So turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 1. And I'm going to read and pray. And if you want to be able to plan ahead, you could put a finger slightly to the left in Acts chapter 17. We're going to be in there as well. So First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. The Word of God says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy... To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. That's all today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to open your book this morning. We thank you so much for the privilege of opening your word. And we pray, God, that even as our heads are bowed before you now, that that would be the posture of our hearts. That, Lord, you would have your way at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Your will would be done here and in our hearts as it is in heaven. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey, if you weren't here last week, we uh, unrolled, if you will, the summer teaching plan. What we're going to be doing this year. And we are starting today in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And we're going to do a series through 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Living in the light of the return of Christ. And we're going to start this week. It's going to run all the way till... Our last service in these texts will be on Labor Day weekend. That Sunday is going to be the last one. And then, I don't know about some of you guys, we've been in these epistle letters for, they're good, but we've been in them for a really, really long time. Amen? Like a long, long time. And so uh, we felt like it's time to just look at some stories of the life of Jesus. So starting the, di- the Sunday after Labor Day weekend, we're going to start a new series in the book of Luke. We're going to jump out of, we'll come back to the other letters later. Um, but let's look at the life of Christ together and take in some of the stories together. Sound good to you guys? That's what we're going to do. So this summer, we're going to be looking through First and Second Thessalonians together. And so as we do this, you know, we've been doing this for a, a while now. Um, Heritage turns nine in a few weeks. And so for nine years, we've been just marching through the word. We actually started our first service in the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1, and we started out by doing a harmony of the gospels, just looking at the chronological, if you will, life of Christ. 
Then we went into Acts and Romans, Corinthians, and just marched our way all the way through. We just finished Colossians last week. We've been doing this for a really long time. And, and I don't know, maybe if you're newer here, you've always wondered, like, why do we do this? Like, really, why do we, why right now are we all together in this kind of, it's a weird format if you think about it. You guys are all a little bit lower down there. I'm standing up a little bit higher and, and I talk and no one ever interrupts me, which is all, at least so far. And uh, like, you know, the, it's like a weird thing that happens. And then we open up the Bible and we start marching through these words that were written thousands of years ago. And then we're trying to figure out what they mean and apply them to our lives. Like, why do we do all that? Well, the reason that we do that is that we believe here at Heritage Christian Fellowship that this is not, these aren't historical essays or stories. They're, they're not just tales. It's not a collection of ancient writings of wisdom. They're not moral fables. They're not, um, it's not even, and I, I know what people's heart is when they say this, but you'll hear people say sometimes that the, the Bible is the owner's manual to our life, like an owner's manual for a car. I mean, kind of, but absolutely no. What we believe this to be is the living, breathing word of God himself. The creator of heaven and earth, these are his words. And and he's telling a story. And so it's not like a collection of Charles Dickens books where you can read Oliver Twist and you don't have to have read any of the other ones to understand Oliver Twist. They all stand alone as individual works and you don't need to know all the other parts. That's not really what's going on in the Bible. This is one continuous story how God is glorifying himself through the redemptive plan of history in mankind. How he is rescuing men and restoring the world back to what the original design was. Not just because he wants the earth to look nice, but because he is glorifying himself. And he has done it in no greater way than through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this book tells the story of the redemptive plan of God. Beginning in Genesis and working all the way through the book of Revelation. The end days when we'll be with him forever in glory. And so when we approach this Bible... We, we do what's referred to as exegesis. There's two different ways people will, will deal with the scriptures. One is called eisegesis. This is a big fancy word. It means putting your thoughts in it. So in other words, you would take a specific verse or a text or something and you, and you have your philosophy and your belief system and, and your background and your opinions and all those things. And so you want to take all those things and push them into the text so that you're making the text kind of say what you kind of want to believe it to say. But the opposite of that is called exegesis. If you think of the word ex as in extract, exegesis says we want to take this text and extract from the text its meaning, apart from, to the best of our abilities, apart from our own opinions or our own backgrounds or philosophies or context or any of those things, we want to just, what does it mean? And then apply that to our own lives. So in other words, we say it sometimes, we'll say we don't want to lord over the text. We want the text to lord over us because it is the inspired authoritative word of our creator, God. And so in doing that, if that's what we're going to do, when we extract meaning, what we're basically trying to do is interpret the Bible. We, we need to understand what it means. We need to understand what it says and then get application from that. So the method that we use here at Heritage, I know I'm sounding super like seminary class here, but the method that we use here at Heritage is referred to as the historical grammatical method. It's an approach to understanding the Bible. And, and this is what it does. 
what, what historical grammatical understands that things like this, so for example, this First Thessalonians, it's not just a book. First Thessalonians is actually, as many of you know, it's a letter. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to a church in the city of Thessalonica. And so it's referred to as the letter to the Thessalonians. It's a letter to real people. So it was written by a real guy in real time to a real group of people in a real city who had real lives and real context and real history and real things going on all around them at the time. And what the historical grammatical approach says is that our interpretation, our understanding of this Bible passage has to come out of that original context. In other words, it means this. When Paul wrote this letter to them, and that church received that letter, they understood it. It made sense to them. Now, it doesn't mean they knew everything about everything, because as you know, we now have the benefit of having the whole canon of Scripture. So, for example, Thessalonians will talk about the second return of Christ. Well, there's things in there talking about the return of Jesus that would have made sense to them that they understood. Did they understand and know everything? No, because they didn't have all of the letters yet. But they did not receive that letter and go, I don't know what Paul's talking about in any of this stuff. He probably wrote it for the people at Heritage Christian Fellowship in 2017. So we, we'll hang on to it and protect it and honor it and study it. Maybe we'll learn something here and there. But it really doesn't make sense to us. But they'll figure it out when they get it. That's not how it worked. When they received the letter, it made sense to them. So if we approach the scriptures and we're trying to extract an understanding of the scripture out of that letter that would have made no sense to them, we probably did it wrong. We probably ignored the intent of the author when he was writing this particular group of people. So as a result, anytime we start a new book of the Bible, we actually take a little bit of time to just begin by going, okay, let's look at who, the, who are the players here? Where, where is this place that this letter is going to? What was going on in these people's lives at that time? Is there historical context around this particular letter that's going to help us understand what's going on, why Paul's writing this, and how the people would have received it? And then we can draw from that to help us understand the text as we move forward. So that's what we're actually going to do today is just talk a little bit about Thessalonica, about the people. And, at the, and we're going to look at in the book of Acts in chapter 17 of the story of how this particular church got planted by Paul and why he's writing them now. And I think you'll see there's some things at play that are worthy of us considering today before we dive in and start taking verse 1, verse 2, verse 3 and going through that. So it's going to be a little more of a history type lesson here with some applicable stuff for us as well. Does that make sense? Can you guys hang with me? me on that today. If you get sleepy, take a nap. Like I just said, rest is godly. So background on Thessalonica. Can we put this map up? So this area right here is referred to as Macedonia. This is this big area right over here. You've got present day Turkey goes up into Bulgaria. Greece is over here. Crete. This is the area here. This is the Aegean Sea in the middle, which is part of the Mediterranean Sea. And Thessalonica is this city right here. And Thessalonica was a really, really significant city um, on the map, so to speak, that day. Um, it was the biggest city in Macedonia. And it got that big for two really specific and important reasons that Paul cared about. 
Um, one of the reasons is it had the best natural harbor in the entire Aegean Sea. So this map, the dot actually covers it up, but your Bible maps, you can look this up yourself, and you'll see there's a natural harbor that comes in and even curves back in, and it was considered the best harbor for any of the cities or any of the land around the Aegean Sea, which made it a really important trade place. In addition, Thessalonica lay right on this one road. The name of the road was the Via Ignatia. This road was a major highway that took people from Asia Minor, which is Turkey, this area right here, all the way to Rome. So it was a really important trade route. So as a result, think about what you have. Really important port city with a really important crossroads going that. Can you think of any cities in our modern context with major ports and massive superhighways going back and forth through them? Places like, for example, San Francisco. I mean, when you drive into San Francisco, you can't help but notice there's always freight ships coming and going with cargo all over the place. Highway, we all know about the traffic going back and forth through there. The airport's massive. It becomes kind of a hub for trade and travel all over the place. And when that happens, it creates, as you guys know, an incredible um, amount of diversity because as people just cross through naturally, whether they're doing trade, whether they're traveling from one place to another, they bring their own background, their own history, their own religions, all of this stuff. And so think of the city of San Francisco. You've got an incredible amount of diversity of nationalities, of backgrounds, ethnic groups, um, religious backgrounds, all of this sort of stuff, all crammed into this one city for very strategic and practical reasons. Now, this particular city right here was a major city for trade and transportation. And because the port was so important and the highway was so important, Rome was all over the city. It was a military hub as well because they wanted to protect that particular spot. Really important city. Now, have you noticed each time we get to one of these books and we start talking about another city, Corinth, Colossae, any, Ephesus, any of these places, have you noticed we seem to say the same kind of thing over and over and over? Have you caught that yet? It was a major trade city. It was crossroads. It was a melting pot. Have you caught that? That's on purpose. When Paul is going and planting churches, he's looking for these cities on purpose. Because Paul is what was referred to as a pioneer missionary. Paul, God bless him, Paul wasn't going to go to White City. Now, I'm not mocking White City. I used to mock White City relentlessly. The emails have stopped me from that. I don't do that anymore. But he just, he just wouldn't go there. He would say it's too small. It's not major crossroads. It doesn't have the strategic advantage that I'm looking for when I'm planting cities. Because Paul's goal was, where can I plant a city, raise up a church, and then as I go on to plant the next one, it's just naturally going to eke, if you will, the gospel out into all sorts of places. So think about it strategically, a city like this, if he can get a thriving church going on there, the fact that people are coming and going, ships are coming and going, every once in a while some sailor or some traveler is going to get saved and he's going to be carrying the gospel with him when he goes somewhere else, it becomes a really important strategic place to plant the church. Paul was a planner and he knew exactly what he was doing when he went on these different missionary journeys. And so when he came to Thessalonica, it was a really important place for him to go. And this city was wealthy, it was protected. The Roman military is all around it. It was a solid, massive city. In fact, there was an early church leader named Meletius, and he, he was the bishop of Antioch, and he was talking about this city in one of his writings, and he said this, as long as nature does not change, Thessalonica will remain wealthy and fortunate. I mean, he's looking at the city going, 
what's going to take this city down? I mean, they've got the Roman military protecting them. They've got all this money, the trade routes, this perfect port. It's right on the major highway. Unless like nature changes and the port dries up or something like that happens, that city is going to be like this forever. Let's, let's take a quick live look in at the city of Thessalonica to the day. Does that look wealthy and prosperous forever to you? It actually looks a little more old and run down, doesn't it? Any businessmen in here on your business trips as you go to and fro, making quick jaunts through the city of Thessalonica? It's not exactly the trade port that it once was, is it? That highway is not all that important anymore, is it? Even on a smaller scale, you ever go through eastern Oregon and find some of these roads and there's little towns that used to be important along the roads that they're on, and now what do we call them? Ghost towns, because they don't exist anymore. This is a little bit of a sidetrack, but not necessarily. The only thing that is permanent and dependable for us from now until the end of eternity is the grace, mercy, and presence of our Lord. And that's all. And it would be good for us to remember that from time to time and think about the things that we're investing in and the kingdoms that we're fighting for and the places that we're putting our security and think about it. The most impenetrable cities in the world. I mean, America, you know this, right? We are Rome now. We're the modern Romans. And the Romans thought they were going nowhere. The Egyptians thought they were there forever. The Greeks thought they were there forever. And we Americans think we're going to be here forever. But the only thing that is eternal is the kingdom of God. And that's the one we have to live with our priorities set on, which is actually kind of a theme of the book. But anyway, we'll come back around to that. Thessalonica, though, because of the fact that it was a crossroads like it was, as I said, people brought all sorts of different religious backgrounds. And it was full of all sorts of different religions, all of the different um, backgrounds from, from the Greek, Greco-Roman gods and all those gods were in place there. Egyptian deities. I mean, when's the last time in the New Testament you're thinking about Egyptian deities, right? But it's the Mediterranean Sea. The ships are coming and going. They're going to Egypt at times. And so you have these Egyptian deities that are back at play in this particular city. Um, the god Isis, not Isis like we know of now, but there was a Greek god, Isis. There's the god, um, goddess Aphrodite, which was the Greek goddess of, um, of uh, love, pleasure, and um, procreation. So high sensual um, atmosphere in that particular city, um, sexuality and that kind of stuff, immoral living, very, very prevalent. And that was part of her worship in that city. Um, one of the more common gods, and think of the story on this one, um, was a guy by the name of Cabrius. It was a, a god that they worshiped there in that particular city, Cabrius. He was the, the patron god of this city. And the story, allegedly, to this particular god, little g, was that he was a guy who was martyred for things that he did not do. That he was killed illegally by his brothers for something that he did not do, and he was buried. But the belief was is that this was a guy of royalty and power who never got to actually take his throne. So they buried him with all of these symbols of power, and the belief was one day he will return, he will take his throne, and he will stand up for the maligned and the poor and the weak. Think Paul had any inroads to talk about Jesus through that story? So that was a really common belief there. There were all sorts of these. But the two religious systems that caused Paul the most trouble were the Jews, which he used to be part of, and the Romans. Please remember, 
when we're talking about Rome, we're not just talking about a civil government and a military. It was also a religion. They believed that the emperor was God. And so you didn't just submit to the civil rule of Rome, you worshiped Caesar. And in this city, with the military all around, with the protection the city got, and all the wealth that they were getting because of Rome and because of all the trade, um, worship of Caesar was a really, really big deal in the city of Thessalonica. And then we also had the Jews. So for those of you that don't remember or that are new to the story, remember Paul actually used to be one of the Jewish religious leaders. And his biggest calling in life was to kill every Christian on the face of the earth, to wipe memory of Jesus off the map and make sure Christianity never existed again. In fact, he was on his way to a city with papers in his hand to arrest a group of Christians when the resurrected Christ appears blinds him. He's knocked off of his horse. He's blind. And Jesus reveals himself to him and says, my paraphrase, Paul, what are you doing? You're wasting your time kicking against this. Look, look who I am. And Paul just experiences this incredible conversion. And he goes from chief guy who wants to kill every Christian to pioneer missionary spreading the gospel all over the world. And, and not just, like even though he was Jewish in his background and a Jewish religious leader, he becomes the primary apostle who takes Christianity out of that small little Middle Eastern area. And now he's up in places like Thessalonica and eventually all the way to Rome. So Paul experiences this massive transition. And Paul, the writer of First and Second Thessalonians, is writing to this church that he planted. Now, we actually have the story of this particular church plant. It's in the book of Acts in chapter 17. So if you'll turn there, you can let the Thessalonians go for today. We'll come back to that next week. But today we're going to look at the story of how this church began in Acts chapter 16, or 17. And you guys know me, I love to give context, so I'm going to give you the background building up to it, starting in Acts chapter 16. How many of you were here when we studied through the book of Philippians? Raise your hand. So some of you are going to remember, we took some time at the beginning of that book to tell the story of how that church planted. You guys remember it? The, the first person in Philippi that Paul comes to is Lydia. Remember Lydia? Really wealthy business lady, really successful, and he meets her and she's studying through scripture. She's kind of a seeker. And he comes in and explains the gospel to her and she gets saved. Then he meets this slave girl. This slave girl who is possessed by a demon. And she's owned by these men that are using her and that demonic influence that's on her as a fortune teller. So literally they've got this girl captive and they're making money off of her doing fortune telling. And Paul finds her. He casts out that demon and she's set free. And, you know, those guys, they were not happy. He had just totally crushed their whole economic model. So they go to the local civilian government and or they, go, they go to the civil leaders and they're like, look what's happening. Look what this guy's doing. And he gets all this stuff stirred up. And so Paul and Silas, his cohort there, get thrown into a Philippian prison. But Paul actually seemed to sometimes almost like prison. Because he's in there when he should be like, woe is me, am I ever going to get out, somebody get my lawyer, all that kind of stuff. He's in there worshiping and just singing. And so that night, you know the story, the walls begin to shake and Jesus or God, the Holy Spirit, just wrecks that whole prison and the whole thing's broken free so that all the prisoners can go. And remember the Philippian jailer, he sees that this has happened and he knows if I lose these prisoners, it means my life. And he's ready to off himself right there on the spot. And he hears this voice call out and Paul says, hey, we're all here. 
which is amazing. It wasn't just Paul. Like he's been ministering to all these prisoners in here, and he's like, we're all here. And the jailer's completely blown away, ends up bringing Paul into his own household. His whole household gets saved. And that's how the church starts. Think about it. B- successful businesswoman, former slave little girl that had a demon just cast out, and a jailer who was suicidal. And Paul goes, all right, that's the church. I'm going to go. See you guys later. And he just leaves. Like, we would never do that. We, wouldn't, we would be like, oh, there need to be more training. We've got to build a seminary here. We're going to have three years of discipleship training. It's amazing what the Holy Spirit did and all this. And Paul sees this happen, and he's like, yes, the church is here. It's going. And then chapter 17 begins, and Paul now leaves Philippi. He gets on that road that I mentioned and starts heading west. And so he's going from Philippi, he makes his way about 90 miles west, and it says in verse 1 of chapter 17, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So Paul comes into the city, makes his way along that highway that I was telling you guys about. He sees this city and he's like, oh, this would be a good spot. It's a major port, major crossroads, biggest city around here. Definitely need a church here. So he makes his way into the synagogue because remember, Jewish background. He knows their belief system. He knows the things they think about. So he's like, I can go in here. I can relate to these guys. I can talk to these guys. And I can, do, I can explain to them that the Messiah they've been waiting on for so long has come that it's Jesus. But of course, if he goes in talking about Jesus who died, that's not accepted by the Jewish people because they're waiting on a king. They're waiting on this ruler, this king that's going to come in and vindicate the Jewish people and kick Rome out. They're waiting on a conqueror. And so the text tells us that for three weeks, Paul's there in the synagogue and he's explaining to them and he's teaching them why this is necessary that the Messiah you waited on has to die. He's trying to tell them this whole story. Now, earlier I asked the question about why is it that we do what we do and what is it that we do when we're here. A couple of things to take note of that it says that Paul did while he was there. The first thing it says is he reasoned. To reason means you closely examine a topic. Like, let's think about this. Let's look at this. Let's focus on this. Let's examine this. The second thing he did, he explained. And and literally the word explained there in the Greek, it actually translates to lay open so that one may see the contents clearly. So think of it like this. There's a suitcase, and I'm trying to explain to you what's in it. The easiest way for me to do that is open the suitcase and lay everything out so that everyone can see and understand what's in the suitcase. Well, that's what he's trying to do with the Scriptures. He's trying to take the Jewish Scriptures, which is our Old Testament, open them up and explain to them, look, this is why, I I know you're waiting for a conquering king, but look, this is how this all works. And he's trying to connect all the dots for them so that they can understand And then the third thing is proclaimed, which we might use even the word preach. He proclaims. And what is it that he's proclaiming? This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And so whenever we gather together in our Bible studies and our worship services and any of those things, I think there's elements of those things that that need to take place. Like, let's stop for a minute and let's reason, let's look at, let's examine this topic, this text. 
And then let's explain it. Let's try to open it up so that we understand what's in here so that we can see the contents of that particular text clearly. But no matter what text you ever open, when you're doing exegesis and you're trying to pull the meaning of that text out so that you might understand it, the end result better be the proclamation of Jesus, just like it was Paul. If you didn't get to Jesus, you did it wrong. That's the whole point. That's what the Bible's all about. Tim Keller even says he loves when people sit down to take notes when they're listening to one of his sermons, but he kind of hopes that by the end they're not writing anymore. And, and not because he doesn't have anything to say, but that because he has pushed Jesus out before the people and lifted him up to the degree that they're so focused on him they're not writing notes anymore. They're just looking and beholding Jesus. That's the purpose that's what we're trying to do when we gather here together. Any Bible study, any translation, any Bible interpretation, it's really easy if you think about it. We've already been told what it means. It's Jesus. Our job's just to get there. But if we proclaim anything else, if our final emphasis that we uphold is anything else other than Jesus Christ, we didn't do it right. And we should figure that out. Amen? So this is what Paul does. Here he is, again, in the synagogue. He's preaching all these things, and he's showing them. He's explaining the scriptures, and he's preaching and proclaiming, Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah you've been waiting for. Jesus is the king that you've been waiting for. So what was the reaction? Well, depends on who you're looking at. Verse 4 says this. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. So there were some Jewish people who hear it. There's some ladies that were leaders in the community that hear it. There's some Greek pagan worshipers that hear it. And they respond to the gospel. They hear the proclamation that Jesus is king. And they're like, yes, Jesus is king. And they're con converted. They become Christians. But, verse 5, the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, which is one of those funny, awesome lines in the Bible. You know what it means literally? It means they literally went to the street corner and found some dudes that were up to no good and said, we could use your help. And they brought these guys in, these wicked men of the rabble. Use that on social media. You're such a wicked man of the rabble. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, poor guy, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And Jason apparently is a convert. They were some, some of the guys there were staying with him. They're like, let's go to Jason's house. He's probably there. So they're attacking this guy. They go to bring him out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. Now just quick pause. Isn't there some irony in that? They just started a riot in the city and then pointed their finger at the apostles saying, they turned the world upside down, look what they're doing. But they're, this is what they're doing. A better way of saying that, I, I, I like what they say. Turning the world upside down. A better way of saying it would probably be, they've turned the world right side up. But we can get to that in a few minutes. So these are the guys, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. And Jason received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, government's always been the same, and the rest, they let them go. 
And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When, and when they arrived, they went into, where did Paul go? The Jewish synagogue. Now that's awesome. They had to kick Paul out of town. His own friends had to say, no, dude, you just got to go and we're going to sneak you out at night. It's like a stealth operation to the very next city. And what's his plan? The exact same thing it's always been. Where's the synagogue? Let's start another church. Paul's awesome. But think about what's happening here. The Jews give accurate testimony to what Paul's preaching. What is it that he's preaching? The Jews say to the civil leaders, this guy's saying that there's another king, that Jesus is king. And look at the commotion they've caused this whole city. Does that sound like another trial that you can remember? Remember when Jesus was brought before the civil leaders of that day? By the Jewish people who were jealous because Jesus had claimed to be God and they rejected his testimony as Messiah? What did they say? They said, this man claims to be king. and People are following him. And what was their response? There is no king but Caesar. There's no king but Caesar. But this guy's claiming to be king and it's turning everything upside down because people are starting to follow him. And so then the civil leaders begin to get concerned because this has actual political ramifications now. And as you guys know, the end result there was Jesus' death. Fortunately for Jason, he just had to pay some fees. It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same story. Exact same testimony. Exact same results. And he's saying that the whole world has been turned upside down. Why? What was it he preached that was so offensive? Listen, church. Paul didn't just preach that Jesus is loving. Is Jesus loving? Come on, 830 service was louder. Is Jesus loving? Yes. yes. But that wasn't the emphasis. That wasn't the end all of his teaching. He did not just preach that Jesus is good or that Jesus can do miracles. Is Jesus, is, is Jesus good? Does he, can he do miracles in people's lives? Yes. But that wasn't the end all. He didn't even just preach and stop with the reality that Jesus is our friend who died on the cross to save us of our sins. Is Jesus our friend? Did he die on the cross to save us from our sins? But even that wasn't the end all of his teaching. His preaching led to an eventual final proclamation that was specific. That Jesus is king. That he's king. He's not just a friend. He's not just loving. He's not just kind. He's all of those things the scriptures say. But he's the good king. He's the kind king. He's the friend king. He's the sacrificing king. But he is the king. And this turned people's worlds upside down. Church, let me tell you. That needs to be the end result of anyone's life when they hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you receive the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has political ramifications within your life. And I don't mean U.S. government politics. I mean, it changes the authority and power structures of your life. Whatever king was in charge before doesn't get to be king anymore because now you know who the real king is. And those other things that are in charge over your life, the Bible calls them idols. And Jesus 
when you realize who he is and what he's done and you receive the gospel, those idols have to come down. And that's that process that God takes us on once we're saved of, of pulling the fingers of idolatry that have such a tight hold on us, loosening its grip so that we can begin to live for other things. But these people couldn't handle it. When they were faced with the reality, Jesus is king or Caesar is king or Aphrodite is king or whatever the thing is that they choose to live for, and they hear that the declaration of who Jesus is means that thing's got to go, they either submitted, were saved, or they said, no, Jesus has got to go. It's one or the other. No man can have two masters, the Bible says. And so I wonder, how many of these people, it's heartbreaking if you think about it. I mean, we read this text and it's, it's easy to see who the enemy is, right? We see Paul, and we see all this, and then we see these people that are chasing him out of town and persecuting, and persecution got so intense in this city, and Paul was scared. Like when Paul left, not scared of the persecution, scared for what was going to happen with that church. He was grieved about that church. That's why he leaves Timothy behind, hoping Timothy will bring report later, because it grieved him to leave these people that he loved. And 1 Thessalonians actually is, most people believe, the earliest letter we have, the first letter Paul ever wrote because of these people. Paul was grieved to leave because of what the enemy was doing there. But church, we even kind of talked about this last week. If you were gone, please, heritage people especially, go listen about this idea of being friends with sinners. But, but listen, the people in the story aren't the enemy. They're victims of the enemy. And they have been fooled. And they are clinging on to idols that they refuse to let go of because to follow Jesus means to relinquish control over here. And the same thing still happens to us today. Same exact thing. Some of you are controlled by lust. That's your king. That's what drives your decisions. That's what drives how you spend your money. For some of you, it's money. For some of you, it's pride, position, power, politics, could be any number of things, success, relationships. But please understand, clinging to these idols is preventing you from living in the light of your true king. And for those of you that have never given your heart to Christ and understood the gospel, it could forever prevent you from that. I wonder what things we have in our life that could prevent us, even just in this next season, Heritage. I wonder what things in our life God wants to turn upside down. What idols are still there that he wants to rip out? What things that even in your own spirit right now, you might feel the riot, if you will, building. But wait a minute, that's not an idol. That's good. I work hard for that money. And I, is there, is there a battle going on right now? Are you going before the civil authorities, if you will, to say, this is not okay. When maybe Jesus is speaking to us and going, man, I, I want to free you from this oppression. I want to free you from the grasp of this idol. I want to tear its fingers out of you and tear your fingers off of it. And I want to present you something better. As the story actually goes on, Paul leaves to the next town. He leaves Timothy behind. And sometime later, he gets a report. Timothy shows up. And Timothy brings him great report. He's like, Paul, they haven't just survived. Paul, they're thriving. Even with the persecution that's going on, even with all the things that are going on, Paul, they're thriving. 
And Paul is filled with wonder. And so he sits down and he writes this letter known as 1 Thessalonians. And the first half of the book of Thessalonians is Paul praising God and praising them for their faithfulness. You have stayed the course. You have held on to the truth. He talks about in it in chapter 1 as we're going to see. You have turned away from idols to worship the true and living God. And he's praising them for what God has done in their community. But he knows the persecution's still coming. The temptations are still there. All of that stuff, they're saved, but I need to encourage them because they are not out of danger. It's probably only going to get harder. So how does he do that? He moves into the second half of the book. The second half of the book begins to emphasize more than anything that this King Jesus, this one that you now live for and serve, church, I know life is hard. Church, I know that you're being persecuted. I know it's difficult. I know the temptations are everywhere, but I have good news Church, the king is coming again. And he seeks to turn their attention to that. Now, as a pastor of this church, there's a tiny little worry that I have with that. Because we've never taught this before. There's stuff in here that is controversial. There's stuff in there that we can claim we know all the answers to it, but that's just prideful. We just don't. There's stuff that's straight up supernatural when you're talking about the rapture, the return of Christ, all those sorts of topics. Like, how does all this work? How do these things go? And I got to be honest with you right now, as your pastor, there's a tiny worry that I have as we head into this. I want to make sure that even as we address these topics, and we're gonna, we don't skip, we're going to go right through them. We're going to study all of this stuff. But even as we address these topics, I don't want any of us to lose the focus of what Paul's really trying to do here. Because what can happen is, is we start looking at all these things and we get so focused on the coming that we forget the going, as in the part where we are supposed to go. People have asked me before, Jeff, what is the eschatological big fancy word for end times when Jesus comes back, end of the world? What is the position of Heritage Christian Fellowship? And I'll tell you the official position. Um, We've done it before. I'll tell you again, the official eschatological position of Heritage Christian Fellowship is Acts chapter 1. People go, what do you mean? Like pre-trib, rapture, post-trib, amil, what are you meant? Acts chapter 1. What's Acts chapter 1? Jesus is with the apostles and he pulls them all together and he says, hey, I want you to go to Jerusalem and I want you to wait. When you get there, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on you. And when that power is poured out on you, you're going to go and be my witnesses all over the earth. In places like Jerusalem, in places like Samaria, in places like Thessalonica, in places like Medford, Oregon, in places like White City. I said I wouldn't do that. I'm sorry, I repent. But you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses. And the apostles, they have this question that people crush them for. They shouldn't. It's a good question. They say to them, is that when you're going to bring the kingdom? And, and it's because they know their Bible. In the book of Joel, it tells this story about how God's going to pour his spirit out on all men. And then it goes into this story of the kingdom of God coming in power. And so they hear about this power that's coming. And they're like, is that it? Is that what Joel's talking about? Are you finally going to set up your kingdom? Are you finally going to come in and rule and reign? And what's Jesus' response? It's not for you to know the times or seasons, but you will receive power and you will be my witnesses. He doesn't mock them for wanting him to come, but he keeps redirecting their focus to the mission. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses. I am going to come back and people need to know this. So go. And then he ascends up into heaven and everybody's standing there. 
like looking up at the sky. And then the story tells, and I, I don't have factual evidence that this is the way it went down, but I'm a visual thinker. I like to think it went this way. Everybody's kind of standing around looking up at the sky, and this angel appears. I like to think he just sort of walked up behind him. Nobody even really noticed. They're just kind of there. He just kind of walks up. What are y'all doing? It's literally with, I mean, it's basically what happens. Why are you staring up at the sky? He says, this Jesus who went, he will return in the same way. In other words, what? It's like, hey, go. And that starts the mission of the church that ends with a guy like Paul who gets saved, working his way all along this highway, getting kicked out of Philippi, making his way into Thessalonica and planting a church that he writes a letter to later, moving on from there and moving on from there and moving on from there to the day that in 2008, another one got planted in Medford, Oregon called Heritage Christian Fellowship. We're part of the same story. People have asked me before, why are we part of the Acts 29 network? That sounds so unbiblical. I looked, there is no 29th Acts. But I understand your heart in that, but all that means, it's, it's a symbol. It means we are part of the continuing story of the spread of the gospel throughout all the ends of the worst, uh, of, of, of the world. And my fear is, and what I've seen happen before, is that when we get into things like the rapture and all these things, we can get so enraptured by all of the, oh, it's supernatural and it's mysterious, it's kind of scary and it's all this kind of stuff. I'm going to start reading my Left Behind books again. I'm going to get all this stuff. And we can get so freaked out by all this stuff that we become that kind of person that we read our Bible in one hand and we have our newspaper in the other hand and we spend all our time doing this. Oh man, ISIS, oh, ISIS was in Thessalonica. That's got to be a sign. And we end up standing and staring into the heavens waiting for Jesus' return. What I would rather have happen is this. Paul wrote to them to say, I know it's tough. I know things are hard. I know it's an increasingly less and less Christian territory that you're in, people. But trust me, the king is coming. And the king told us, be about my business be about my mission. Be good stewards. The king is coming. So my hope is, Heritage, as we tackle some of these things for the very first time in nine years of our history, my hope is nothing will take our eyes off of the mission and everything will take our eyes back to the purpose and the person of Jesus Christ. But it's not just eschatology that can do that. We got about 10 minutes left. I'm going to use five of them. Are there gods you're clinging to that will prevent you from hearing the message that Paul wants to send to the people of Thessalonia, to the people of us, Medford, Oregon? Like, are there things that you're holding on to? Are there idols that we're clinging to and that are going to prevent us from being able to hear what God's will is for us? Think about it. It turned their world upside down. What if he did that to you? What if the job that you are holding to so tightly is actually the thing that Jesus wants to release you from so that you could go to a place like that and preach the gospel? Could you do it? Could you? If your king told you to, could you? Or is it things like lust or, or whatever it might be that and you, you love Jesus and you want to follow Jesus and you want to do this, but you just can't seem to let go of this thing. I pray that this summer, that as we just go through this, we'll see. This is just an intro, like I said. But I, I pray for us that the end result as we work our way through this series in First and Second Thessalonians is that we would have that same sort of reaction as Paul. Like, look at the faithfulness of God. 
how we've turned away from idols to worship the true and living God, and that we have this hope set before us that Jesus Christ is coming again soon. So we don't have to get so wrapped up in politics or money or job or sex or any of those other things. We can keep our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ. Can we do that, church? Then let's pause and give him opportunity now. Will you bow your heads with me? I know we kind of did this during worship, but we'll do it again. I want you to go to God yourself in quiet prayer. Just say, God, am I clinging to idols that are preventing me from living the life that you, my king, have designed for me? Whatever that means. Is it personal comfort? Is it money, stuff, sex, jobs, anything? Father, examine my heart. And see if there be any wicked way in me. Go to the Lord now and ask him. Father, sometimes it can be a scary thing to go before you and ask you to lay our lives open like that, to analyze, to see what is inside and to expose it to us. But Lord, thank you for the comfort that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us. Thank you that we don't come before an evil dictator, but we come before a benevolent king who wants to be known by his grace and his goodness. But we do know that you are king. And one day, whenever that day may be, the skies will peel back. And Jesus, you will come again on that white horse, Lord. You will return in power and in glory. You will establish your kingdom. We will rule and reign with you forever, but we will also stand before you, our king. And that is humbling. So God, may you, by your grace, pour your spirit out upon us to both purify us and empower us to fulfill the mission that you've given us. Lord, may you put your spirit in us. May you drive idols out of us. May you put the gospel on our tongues and whatever you would have us to do, wherever that might be, may we be faithful. May we follow. May we obey. And may we experience the absolute freedom and joy that comes with living in the kingdom of God. Lord, will you bind the enemy that wants to provoke fear in people's lives and make them think that if we sell out for Jesus, then we've missed out on something somehow? God forbid. May you show us again the joy of being one of your children and the reality of your coming kingdom. And may we live as ambassadors of that kingdom even today. And Lord, have your way with us. We, we call you, Lord. We pray to you as Lord. We sing to you as Lord. Do we live with you as Lord? I pray, God, even now, soften the grip of the idols in our lives. Loosen our finger from those things that seek to destroy us. And may we extend our hands to you in worship and praise and gratitude and be faithful and obedient to you. Will you empower us to do that, Lord? Sing this old hymn with me. Have thine own way, Lord. 
have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. With your head still bowed, I want you to think. You sang it, did you mean it? Was that a prayer from your heart that recognizes God's place and authority over us and our lives? Or was it just a song? May God purify our hearts. May this be a prayer of our hearts to the King. Sing this with, stand and sing this with me one more time. Sing. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Make this your prayer to him. Mold me. Mold me and make me after thy will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. Lift your voice. Sing, have thine own way. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Search me and try me. Search me and try me, Master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now. As in thy presence, humbly I bow. Father, help us to remember that that day is coming when we will stand in your physical presence, but that also the reality has already come that we are in the presence of the living God now. And Father, may we live in your joy and in your peace. Lord, we repent of our sins. We ask, Lord, take our idols away. And Father, will you lead us to the good paths, to the green pasture, to the still water that you have designed for your people. May we be obedient to your gospel call and carry the gospel to the world around us. And Lord, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We long for the day that we see you again. But Lord, may we be found faithful about your kingdom until that day. Will you grant your church that, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.